0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, June 24th. I'm Rachel Del
1: Judas. And I'm Virginia Allen. Higher education is now a stronghold of the political left, but what can be done about it? Peter Wood, the president of the National Association of Scholars, joins the podcast to explain the state of higher education. We also discuss how many universities have embraced the 1619 Project and the University of North Carolina's decision to deny the author
0: of that project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, tenure. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, today's interview was recorded at the Heritage Foundation's Resource Bank Conference, so please excuse any background noise. And now, onto our top news. Vice President Kamala Harris will be making her very first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border as vice president. Harris, who was tasked in March by President Joe Biden to be the point person for the border crisis, will be visiting El Paso, Texas, and will be accompanied by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Harris has been criticized for being the point person for the crisis while not visiting the border itself. Here is what Cochise County Sheriff Mark Daniels told The Daily Signal in April about the situation.
2: We haven't been prioritized on the southwest border. If that was the case, The vice president would be here. She was close. She got to South Carolina the other day, I heard. North Carolina. I got a call from the sheriff in that county. Say, hey, the vice president's here. I go send her south. I'd like to have a word with her. But she hasn't been down here. And she's supposed to be in charge of this.
1: The Supreme Court announced an important First Amendment free speech case on Wednesday involving a high school cheerleader. In 2017, Pennsylvania high school student Brandy Levy did not make her varsity cheerleading team. In response, she posted an angry message with expletives on her Snapchat. Levy did post that message outside of school hours. But the school's cheerleading coaches learned about the post and in response suspended Levy from the junior varsity cheerleading squad for one year. Levy sued the school for violating her First Amendment right to free speech. The case rose to the level of the Supreme Court and the justices voted 8-1 to 1 in favor of Levy, finding that the school's ability to regulate a student's free speech does diminish off-campus. Justice Clarence Thomas was the only dissenting vote, writing, A more searching review reveals that schools historically could discipline students in circumstances like those presented here. Because the majority does not attempt to explain why we should not apply this historical rule and does not attempt to tether its approach to anything stable, I respectfully
0: dissent. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis says that Florida schools will be teaching children about the evils of communism. On Tuesday, DeSantis signed legislation that will require schools to teach about communism and totalitarian governments and will also protect conservative instruction in school. Here's what DeSantis had to say about the legislation via the Daily Caller.
3: Curriculum can really provide a guide to how that should be done. Uh, the bill also expands uh, our previous efforts in civics to add a requirement for the high school government class that um, students receive instruction on the evils of communism and totalitarian ideologies. Uh, We have uh, a number of people in in Florida, particularly southern Florida, who've escaped uh, totalitarian regimes, who've escaped communist dictatorships um, to be able to come to America. Uh, We want all students to understand the difference. Why would somebody flee uh, across shark-infested water, say, leaving from Cuba to come to southern Florida. Uh, Why would somebody leave a place like Vietnam? Why would people leave these countries uh, and risk their life to be able to come here? It's important that students understand that. Now, as part of this bill, Florida will create a portraits and patriotism library so students can learn about real patriots who came to this country after seeing the horrors of these communist regimes. We actually have uh, folks here today. Uh, you'll hear from uh, her in a minute, Anna uh, Abauza. She came to the United States when she was a teenager, fleeing from Nicaragua, when the Sandinistas brought socialism to that country. She graduated from the University of Florida.
1: The alleged COVID-19 baby boom turned out to be a baby bust. A report from the National Center for Health Statistics at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the American birth rate fell by 4% from 2019 to 2020, which happens to be the sharpest decline since 1973. Just over 3.6 million babies were born in 2020. That's about 150,000 fewer births than 2019, and 700,000 fewer births than 2007. The decline in birth rates appears to be distributed decently equally across all 50 states. White and black women both experienced a 6% decline in birth rates. Asian women had the sharpest decline at 12% and Hispanic women the smallest decline at 5%. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Peter Wood as we discuss the path forward for higher education as it becomes increasingly influenced by the political left.
3: Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast.
1: I am joined by Peter Wood, the president of the National Association of Scholars. Mr. Wood, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Great to be here.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about what you do at the National Association of Scholars. What is your mission?
2: Okay. Well, we're a 35-year-old membership organization that started out with the idea that uh, reforming American higher education in the direction of its traditional standards was going to be a cakewalk. <laughs> it turned out to be a bad theory, <laughs> um, but uh, it's what we do. Um, I divide our work into uh, three categories. One of it is uh, trying to help individual faculty members who've been canceled or run into problems with political correctness. We also do in-depth research reports, and we do policy work trying to convince the powers that be that American higher education is in serious need of reform. So uh, we're a membership organization with about 4,000 members, most of them academics, but not all of them. And uh, our outlook on life, I guess you would say, is that American higher education needs to do several things. It needs to pursue the truth. It needs to maintain a spirit of intellectual freedom, which goes beyond just the boundaries of mere academic freedom. Uh, And it needs to produce... Uh, virtuous citizens, people who understand what our country is and why it matters. Mm. And uh, those are three things which it uh, turns out to be singularly inept at doing these days. So we're, we're fighting an uphill battle. I think uh, this happens to be a moment when we see the American public awakening to just how uh, ill-served it has been by our colleges and universities. Mm. Uh, People are now fond of recognizing that many of our nation's problems derive from the ill education that students have received.
1: Well, Dr. Wood, you are a scholar, you're surrounded by scholars, you work with scholars. You recently wrote a piece about the author of the New York Times 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. The board at the University of North Carolina this spring denied Hannah-Jones' tenure. Why is that significant? Well,
2: the 1619 Project is uh, partly written by and partly edited by Nicole Hannah-Jones. launched in uh, August of 2019. Uh, It has become a major piece in the culture wars over what should go on in education. The Times originally launched it partly as a curriculum aimed at K-12 schools, and many thousands of schools have now adopted it. Whole school districts like Chicago and, and Buffalo took it on very quickly, but it's also spread into classrooms across the country. Um, that seems to me to be a, a, a terrible thing because the 1619 Project is, first of all, largely false. It's made up of uh, strong claims such as the uh, United States, what became the United States, began with false principles when slaves were brought to Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. But it goes on to try to demolish virtually every aspect of what we would consider American exceptionalism, that our ideals of freedom and equality are false because we're really a system of uh, racial repression. Uh, Critical race theory is the broader category in which the 1619 Project falls. The 1619 Project, however, is the the tip of the spear. It it is where critical race theory is being brought into the lives of children as young as six years old. Um, So I've been resisting it. The National Association of Scholars immediately launched what we called our 1620 Project. I turned that into a book, which was a systematic critique of the 1619 Project. So we've been deep into the fight against Nicole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times, and the 1619 Project generally. When uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones was put up for a tenured professorship at the University of North Carolina, um, the board there took a close look at what she really stood for and decided that. Uh, granting her tenure was off the table. They actually made that decision in January of this year, though it wasn't reported publicly until April. When it was reported, uh, all hell broke loose. There are many faculty members at that university and around the country who think that this was a, a gross violation of her academic freedom. Well, she's not an academic. Uh, Her highest degree is a master's degree, she has no scholarship behind her to the extent that she is a public figure. One could recognize that a university might want to bring her in as someone who uh, has something to say, but to treat her as though she were an academic who had met the uh, rigorous standards for tenure is, is sort of silly. Um, it was a political move on the part of a politicized faculty, and I think it was rightly opposed by the trustees of the university.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, And you mentioned, you know, we've seen across the country, many school districts have very quickly embraced the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. It almost seems before they have a chance to even read it. Uh, how do you think uh, that we can really go about communicating well what the 1619 project actually is and then what the alternatives are for how we can be teaching history to our young people uh in a really encompassing way you know not not leaving out of course the sin of slavery of america's past but also not uh not just saying you know america is is ruined and uh, but really telling the full story
2: well i think you're right that a lot of uh School districts, teachers, others have just taken the 1619 Project at face value. There's a claim that African Americans have been left out of American history, and this is an occasion on which it can be replaced. Well, even the claim that African Americans have been left out of American history is a gross exaggeration. At least for the last 50 years, slavery in America has been maybe the most important topic addressed by American historians. Whole journals are devoted to it, whole careers are built on it. Many of the major works of history written during the last half century have been devoted to slavery. So it's just absolutely false that this has not been part of our told history. You have to go back a long ways to find a period when this was history that was ignored or erased. So the first thing we need to do is just remind ourselves of how much progress has been made in racial history in America, and that the the whole civil rights movement feeds into an era in which we have acknowledged the contributions of, of African Americans to the building of this country. Uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, this this journalist, wakes up one day and decides she wants to tell a story it would have behooved her to at least tell the story accurately, not to portray Abraham Lincoln as a racist whose motive in the Civil War was to exile blacks from off the North American continent, or not to tell the story that the Declaration of Independence and the American founding were really about the efforts of Americans to prevent the British from abolishing slavery. That never happened. That threat was never made. That wasn't the reason why we fought the revolution to start teaching young children that uh, that fairy tale is just a terrible thing in itself because it's not truthful, but also it's destructive to our country. And I think Americans, as we begin to understand that racial division is not in our favor, that uh, building a form of education that encourages resentment and guilt uh, is a way of dividing the country that will be destructive to the lives of everybody, black and white. So that's what we need to say.
1: That is critical. I want to pivot for a moment. The National Association of Scholars now has a tracker for cancel culture in higher education. This is really fascinating to me. Tell me about this tracker.
2: Well, we decided once the uh, numbers started to pile up that it would be a good thing to have one place where one can go to see how often this is happening. Um, Virtually every week we get approached by another faculty member at some college or university saying, what can I do? Look at the trouble I'm in. Usually that involves some statement that the faculty member had no ill intention in making, um, minor things getting blown up into uh, big accusations and administrators panicking and thinking that unless we do something quick to suppress this person uh... we're going to have riots on campus so uh, we decided that uh, getting the facts out would be important so our tracker looks at who's been accused what the accusation is what sort of response the college or university has made what the outcome of that has been and uh, we took it back three years so we have a good collection now of instances wow. and this is all public information it's available to whoever wants to look
1: how many have you all tracked Do you know the number well,
2: we're in the hundreds now
1: okay. so. Wow, so. I appreciate you tracking that but it's a little discouraging that there's that many mm-hmm. is there a theme of those who are canceled is there anything that is sort of a you know common denominator uh, for these individuals who are canceled
2: no I don't think there really is. It seems to be across all the disciplines. It happens to people in the humanities, the social sciences, and the natural sciences. Um, It happens to people who are just starting out. It happens to people who have been teaching for 40 years. Uh, If there's a theme, it is that they have uh, offended, or a a student at least has said that he or she is offended. Um, It could be a matter that the uh, faculty member has chosen not to use the preferred fun- pronoun of a student. Uh, mm. Or it could be a matter that uh, uh, someone has uh, read a text by Mark Twain that uses the N-word. And it goes across the board. Some of it has to do with the uh, racial politics on campus, some of the sexual politics, and some just seems out of thin air. People can get into trouble for all sorts of things.
1: Mm. What do you think about the fact that uh, Princeton recently decided that it was going to remove its, its Greek or Latin requirement for classic majors based on uh, concerns about race concerns?
2: Well, I don't want to overuse the word tragic, but it comes pretty close <laughs> to that. Um, the, the effort to uh, broaden the appeal of the classics by um, eliminating what the classics is all about it seems to be a, a kind of wound to the foot. Uh, the, um, what would classics mean if you're not reading the originals in Latin and Greek? Any of us at any time can sit down and read translations of the Odyssey or the Iliad or the Aeneid, uh, and we should. I mean, there are some splendid English translations of them, but that doesn't make you a... Uh, Person who has studied the classics in the real sense of the word. Now, uh, presumably the reason Princeton's classics department wants to do this is that it's gotten woke. The, the head of the department is uh, aggressively woke, and the idea is that they'll be able to attract more minorities into the department if they don't make this hard intellectual demand on them. Well, learning Latin and Greek is hard, and. Uh, Unfortunately, it's what it takes to become a a scholar in those fields.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like the field of academia, you know, it's it's always leaned left. Mm -hmm. It's kind of taken a, I feel like a radical and fast turn, much much harder left. So, uh, what are your thoughts? You know, is is this leftist ideology coming from entirely within the United States, or are there maybe also some some outside influences that are impacting this this leopard agenda
2: well it's not something that's entirely in the united states uh, britain australia other countries are seeing much the same thing uh, there have been interesting headlines lately about how uh, the french government is worried that it's going to spread to france from from the united states mm. a nice irony in there since so many of our ideologies have first come from france well now they're blowing back at france and they don't like it but Why is it happening here and now? I think that um, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the one place in the world where uh, true believers in Marxism remained in substantial numbers was the American college campus. Uh, They have never relented in their pursuit of a radical interpretation of our history But what has happened is that a generation has grown up without the Cold War behind it, without any sense of what a Marxist government or Marxist social system really looks like. So the appeal of this idea has deepened. I think there's a lot more to it than that. It connects with the... Uh, increasing secularization of American society people who who don't have any ultimate belief in God are more susceptible to the idea that we can be God we can remake our lives from the ground up um, American feminism has played a part in this um, partly in uh, deriding masculinity and partly from uh, teaching women that uh, a, uh, a pursuit of anything is bound to run into a glass ceiling. Well, the glass ceiling may not even be there, but uh, the the sense of resentment and grievance is there. And those things play into the ability of colleges and universities to present a a radical curriculum that that resonates to some degree with your generation.
1: Is there any hope for our colleges and universities, that we can pull them back a little bit more center?
2: Well, there are some colleges and universities that have resisted this, maybe a dozen or so around the country. And almost every college and university has a handful of, uh, of survivors, of, of uh, professors who aren't willing to give up. So there's always hope with that, and I, I try to speak for and to uh, those. But I would say if on uh, the broader picture, probably American higher education is going to have to uh, hit a, a real hard bump before it changes its direction. Uh, For one thing, the faculty members are committed to agendas that aren't going to change, and most of those people have tenure. They're not going anywhere. They're going to continue teaching what they teach. Uh, What is happening, however, is that um, parents are reaching the limit of what they can pay for. The costs of college have become extraordinary. The debt that uh, students go into to support the cost of college has become unbearably high. Um, and with the COVID shutdown, uh, large numbers of students discovered that they could get much the same education at a fraction of the price without the trouble. Now, you know, it's a complicated problem. Students do want to be on campus and meet each other and uh, enjoy the Act of learning together, not simply sitting at a home in mom's basement or something like that. Um, nonetheless, the the dynamics, the and the economics of higher education are at a crisis point, which is likely to result in the closure of a good many colleges and universities, and the opening of others. I like to say that. Colleges and universities aren't the only way in which people engage in higher education. Uh, they never have been, and I think increasingly we're likely to see uh, students finding their way to the alternatives that are out there, so yes.
1: So as uh, young people are looking for a college, as maybe parents are listening and they're thinking, well, what are maybe you know two or three of those really good colleges that are, are still left Mm-hmm. that haven't been corrupted. Uh, who are who are some of those in colleges that you would recommend uh, students well, consider? Well, um,
2: I'm a little reluctant to be uh, praising brands, but I can name some of the, the ones that I think pe- people probably already know about, like Hillsdale and Grove City and uh, University of Dallas, uh, all of which are, are quite estimable places. I, um, I'm actually working on a, a list of recommendations that I hope to make public soon, which will have many more than than those on it. Um, the uh, I also think it's a, a crucial thing that people who are considering going to uh, universities that aren't on the list of ones that I think are, are really solidly safe understand that there are they're good departments and their good programs within other universities, including many that uh, have adopted uh, policies overall that look pretty dismal. So uh, if you're a good shopper, you can find the places to go in American higher education where a first-rate education is available. Just don't be taken in by uh, the programs that are praised relentlessly but aren't very good.
1: Dr. Wood, thank you. really appreciate
0: your time today, and thank you for the work that you're doing at the Association of Scholars.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: And so that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal
1: podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others
0: to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow.
3: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.